Right. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to this session. This is ARC 335, Designing for Failure, Architecting Resilient Systems on AWS. My name is uh, Harsha Nepani. I'm a solutions architect with AWS. And with me on stage is uh, Vinay Kola. He's a software engineer at uh, Snap Inc. And also uh, with me is uh, Pavan Nagnihotri. He's a senior manager with the solution architecture team, also with uh, AWS. This is a 300-level session, so there will be uh, some content that I'm going to skip over in the interest of time. Uh, but um, I'm assuming some of you already have background with AWS and AWS services. And here's the agenda topics for today. I will be covering the first two topics, the risk and resilience, and also technical considerations from AWS services perspective. And then um, in the next segment, uh, customer use case, um, Vinay is going to walk us through how they have architected their tier one services uh, using uh, AWS services and also uh, patterns that they have deployed. And after that, uh, Pawan will walk you through uh, the continuous resilience model, how to, um, some of the principles behind that and some of the patterns that uh, we have seen in the industry. And then finally, we have some takeaways in terms of other related sessions that are relevant to uh, the topic and also an AWS white paper that Pawan and uh, um, a, a bunch of people have co-authored um, to give you more dive-deep analysis into um, some of the important uh, design aspects. All right, with that, let's dive in. Risk and resilience. The financial services industry is one of the most critical and heavily regulated industry, and it requires uh, resilient applications to serve businesses and customers around the globe. In 2003, the United States financial regulatory agencies like the Federal Reserve, the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, and the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, have come up with a set of regulations in terms of requiring specific RTO, the recovery time objective for agencies, to implement RTO of two hours for most critical applications. This is not specific to the FSIs. Uh, there are uh, other industries who have similar mandates in terms of RTOs and RPOs. So looking at those regulated uh, uh, entities who have to subscribe to those RTOs or RPOs, one of the core tenets for good application design uh, practice is to design for failure. And as the Amazon CTO Werner Vogel says, everything fails all the time. Resilient applications are, uh, provide continuous service despite disruption, and the disruption can take many forms from uh, natural disasters to human error or introducing bad code uh, or hardware failures. So um, if you take into account those considerations, uh, customers in the financial services industry and other industries have sought guidance from AWS in terms of what are some of the best practices in terms of implementing tier zero, tier one, which is mission critical applications on AWS? And several factors are driving these requirements, such as the financial impact, uh, the regulatory response, as I indicated earlier, uh, reputational risk, user impact, data loss, and other aspects. So these requirements typically carry a, a bunch of uh, KPIs, uh, the key performance indicators, and these KPIs at least in the industries that, uh, um, that are um, tightly integrated with um, best practices of IT, uh, they use RTO and RPO uh, objectives in order to define those resiliency requirements. 
And as explained in the, uh, if you're familiar with AWS well-architected, uh, well-architecture uh, framework, the well-architected uh, reliability pillar gives you some details in terms of uh, service availability, which is uh, service availability is commonly defined as the percentage uh, of time that an application is operating normally. And these are represented in terms of uh, the number of nines. Uh, some of you may be familiar in terms of uh, four nines of availability or five nines of availability. These are derived based on your business requirements, which are translated into RTRPO, which are then translated into the, the nines. So for, with respect to prescriptive guidance, uh, what AWS uh, essentially helps customers is to help you break it down what those mean in terms of services and how we design our services. Um, we spoke about AWS Well-Architected Framework, and there is also, as you probably know, AWS uh, Shared Responsibility Model. Based on uh, the, st the application stack that you have, whether it is databases or uh, storage uh, or compute, based on the service that you're consuming, uh, it, the shared responsibility model changes. And please pay attention to the stack that you have uh, so that you know which ones are responsible uh, uh, by, by, the, by AWS versus your responsibility. Um, at, a, at a high level, uh, Again, AWS manages security and availability off the cloud, and you as the customers are responsible for application security and availability in the cloud. Now, let's talk a little, uh, little bit about AWS services themselves and how we deploy the control plane and data plane elements into the AZs. Uh, the first and foremost is uh, the construct, which you probably are already aware, uh, the regions and the availability zones and networking. Uh, Again, at a high level, AWS region is a separate geographic area where cloud resources can be instantiated by you as the customer. And availability zones are um, essentially a collection of one or more data centers which forms a campus within a region. And availability zones, as you probably know, are, uh, uh, are separated and independent and are built with highly redundant networking. And we employ multiple application design constructs uh, with, with different levels of uh, uh, redundant components. And one of the ways we do that is the fault isolation zones. Fault isolation zones, so we just talk, talked about multi-AZ architectures, right? Uh, we strongly recommend customers deploying uh, tier one or highly critical production uh, applications into multi-AZ uh, architecture. But also what we do uh, from the services side is not only AZ, but also uh, we deploy in a, um, a cell-based architecture. What is cell-based architecture? Um, cell-based architecture is we micro-segment resources even within an AZ into m smaller chunks of resources so that each resources are independent of each other. So when we deploy, do code push, or if there is a, a hardware failure and things like that, it is much more uh, localized than just an AZ. Um, so when, we put, when we're pushing code and things like that, it's going into a cell-by-cell -cell basis so that you are constraining that uh, blast radius to most minimum uh, affected resources possible. So that is one. Uh, number two is uh, microservices architecture. You may be familiar with that. If you have, a lot of enterprise customers also have applications that have upstream dependencies and downstream dependencies. We understand that, but the way to uh, construct that on AWS to make sure uh, you are um, set up for success is loosely coupled systems, and the best way to do that is microservices architecture that is essentially uh, the path forward. Um, 
And in addition to that, distributed systems architecture, uh, some of the uh, callouts here is throttling. As you probably know, we throttled some of the APIs to make sure our services are functional, right? If, if you cannot just uh, run um, millions of API calls against a service um, just to make sure we, our control plane is able to uh, respond to those API calls. Similarly, you could do something like that, throttling your APIs, uh, and also error retries. If you encounter 5xx errors, most likely if you contact AWS support, we'll, we'll let you know that you should try to incorporate in your, uh, uh, in your development patterns to uh, have a error retry with an exponential backoff. That is a standard industry best practice in terms of software design. Uh, and also introduce circuit breakers. So with that, um, again, now let's to start uh, with the, the global connectivity options. Whether you are born in the cloud or a customer using hybrid uh, uh, deployment, meaning on-prem servers and also you have uh, workloads that are in the cloud, it all starts with the global connectivity options from AWS. With, uh, we own uh, the fiber um, that's connecting the direct connect between different regions and uh, the uh, points of presence across the globe. I'm not gonna go too deep into this. This is probably something already you're familiar with, but the general tendency is, okay, now that I'm architected well uh, in, given in, within the region, there may be uh, your uh, business requirements or regulatory requirements that will drive you towards having an out-of-band, out-of-region resiliency as well. This is typically, even in the data center world, you would have your primary data center and a DR data center. And that is essentially the way to um, address that is there are four strategies. Um, backup, restore, pilot light, warm standby, active active. Not all applications go into a single uh, strategy. It all, depending upon your tiers, you would want to adopt different uh, strategies. Again, backup, restore, pretty straightforward. You're uh, from one region to another region. You're essentially backing up all your data, your configuration, and restoring on the other side. Uh, most common pattern for this is S3 uh, replication and things like that. Keep in mind when you're doing this, uh, you should be aware that RTORPO are high if you go with this approach. So if you have very critical applications, you don't want to be considering this as an option because it'll take more time to bring up resources in the DR region. And uh, the second strategy is pilot light. Again, in this scenario, uh, RTRP are better than the previous example, uh, but here you're replicating your primary data set into a DR region. There are tons of options in terms of uh, replication. I will be covering that in the next segment. But essentially, you are replicating the data set and also the configuration. Very, very important. If you are doing CI/CD, please make sure you have a pipeline delivering the exact same code Whatever you're delivering to your primary region is also pushing the same code to um, a DR region, right? So that why do we do that? Because to make sure there is no configuration drift uh, and uh, whatever uh, the configuration parameters that you have supplied are consistent. In the event of an outage uh, and it is breaching your SLAs in terms of RTRPO, you fail over to the uh, DR region and bring it up. The third strategy is warm standby. Again, a lot of this is probably the most common use case in the enterprise segment. What I have seen uh, is you're replicating the data set, but also have a set of services uh, already deployed in your uh, DR region. And in the event of an outage, essentially what you're doing is pushing an auto scaling. Uh, uh, you're adjusting your auto scaling groups to bring up your full production stack in the DR region. Much better RTO RPO in this scenario. And how are you flipping the traffic? It is essentially a DNS switch at the Route 53. Of course, there are multiple uh, uh, options in order to do that. 
Active-active, this is complex. I'm just giving you one pattern here. Uh, there are multiple patterns. There is a session on active-active multi-region uh, design. Uh, if you look up, I think it is either tomorrow or Thursday, I encourage you to attend that session if you really want to go active-active because it is extremely complex. You need to understand a lot of nuances in order to pull that off. One strategy here is, so you're, uh, you're doing the snapshot replication to make sure, again, that your standard AMIs and uh, uh, all the configuration is replicated. The database is replicated. In, in this scenario, say I'm giving you an example where users in San Francisco are going to US West 2 region, and then users in Taipei are going to Asia Pac region, right? This, this pattern is called read local, meaning you are reading all the configuration and accessing the resources locally in that region. And then if you have read-write activity, so reading is still local, but in a scenario where you have to write to a database, you are essentially writing globally, meaning to one region. Why? Because if you have strong ACID requirements and data consistency is important for you, you cannot uh, uh, take uh, data corruption or inconsistency uh, this is the model that you would approach. So read locally, but write globally. So as you can see, the users in Taipei will go right to the, and as indicated in the blue line, uh, is writing to the global region. The problem here is obviously the users in Taipei might experience a little bit of latency writing to the database because they're traversing uh, longer distance. So that's something that you have to take into account into your service design to make sure you record the, uh, the latency and adjust accordingly. So there are, before I move on, there are other uh, strategies that you could do data sharding. So with data sharding, what you could do is the sharded data set, shard one, is only users in uh, San Francisco can write to the data sharded uh, set in, uh, in one region. And data sh uh, shard two is, uh, is available in uh, APAC, and the APAC users will write to that. So that's another one. So there, there are multiple strategies to actually do read locally and write locally as well. But there are, again, uh, there are some nuances uh, you, that you need to consider. Some technical considerations that I'd like to call out here. Uh, S3 replication. If you have uh, a requirement to replicate your objects to uh, other region, a standard way to do that is enable S3 replication at the bucket level or the prefix level or the object level. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, this is no different in terms of uh, the, uh, the replication, what you have in terms of if you have a data center and if you are doing SAN replication using SRDF, think of that as similar to SRDF replication uh, at, the, at the object store level. The uh, one important call out here, the replication time control, we launched this, uh, we launched this uh, feature a couple of uh, weeks ago. Uh, for customers who have a requirement for RPO guarantee, meaning I'm doing today, I'm doing SRDF replication on-prem between two data centers. I know the SLA is 15 minutes. Amazon, can you provide something like that as, in terms of an SLA guarantee? That's what replication time control gives you, is essentially if you have a regulatory requirements, most of the objects that, uh, that are replicated is within seconds, but we have 99.99% uh, guarantee that mm. most of the objects will be um, delivered under 15 minutes. So if you have 15 minutes or less SLA for your critical application for replication, uh, please enable RTC. Uh, there are others, uh, EBS snapshots. Again, you probably are aware you can do cross-region EBS snapshots um, if, you are, if your data store is primarily uh, on EBS volumes. 
DynamoDB, very important. I just mentioned to you about uh, read locally and also write uh, uh, locally or uh, write globally. This is a fully managed multi-master, multi-region database uh, using uh, DynamoDB global tables. So that's the advantage you get in terms of you don't have to worry about the replication, you don't have to worry about um, whether synchronization is happening or not and things like that because with DynamoDB global tables, you get that option. So if you can adopt your application data set into a NoSQL database, then this is the option for you to consider. If you are using relational databases um, and using RDS, say MySQL or Postgres, uh, and you want to do something similar, so what you could certainly do, so you don't have today multi-region, multi-master option. That is something that's in the works. Uh, but uh, what you could certainly do is cross-region read replica and make sure you promote your read replica in the event of the disaster where your primary region goes down, you take your read replica in the other region and promote that to be the new master and reroute, reroute all the traffic, the right traffic to that uh, replicated region. And then, uh, so that's essentially how you uh, promote. And in the, finally, VPC networking, this is also extremely important. So one way to make sure, so we, we talked about data uh, replicating, replicating of data, but also there is connectivity options, right? You have uh, uh, resources in uh, region one and resources in region two. One of the most common patterns is, okay, I wanna have the resources talk to each other. One strategy is, okay, I wanna do uh, VPC peering. VPC peering gives you that capability uh, using Amazon's uh, network backbone to talk to resources uh, across two regions. Uh, this is not traversing the internet, so this is all going through the private channel, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, uh, but as you, if you are an enterprise customer having hundreds of accounts and potentially hundreds or 200 uh, VPCs uh, deployed, managing those VP, uh, VPC uh, peering connections can be a operational nightmare, right? I mean, as an operations person, you need to keep track of what you're peering and things like that. So one strategy uh, a lot of uh, enterprise customers have adopted is, instead of doing VPC peering for every single VPC, I'm gonna deploy the most common applications like IDP and um, like my authentication uh, uh, services and monitoring services into a centralized shared services VPC and have those centralized shared services VPC peered, and the rest of the VPCs are connected locally uh, to the shared services VPC. That way, you are still having that cross-region capability. If my shared services is down in one region, I can still go reach out my shared services in the other region without having to do a complete failover. That's the strategy behind this. And then, finally, for this is the most important piece where if you are a hybrid customer, you have on-prem resources, you have resources on AWS, um, a, a typical standard format would be your data centers are represented on the right and then you have a direct connect connection in the middle. Um, we strongly recommend make sure have your uh, dual DX links, right? And your port speeds can be one gig or 10 gig, but most likely for an enterprise customer, I, we would strongly recommend 10 gig connection for that bandwidth and throughput utilization. And then we introduced, uh, last year we introduced the concept of uh, transit gateway and DX gateway. Uh, the advantage of this is, uh, first of all, if you are a large, again, go back to the previous example, you have hundreds of accounts, you, and you say if, you're, uh, if you have a regulation uh, to maintain VPN connections, 
Then you have to maintain the BGP connections of uh, all those VPNs between the CGW, the customer gateway, and the VPG, which is the virtual private gateway. That becomes an, a, another operational nightmare to maintain all those VPN connections. So with this design, you can, uh, um, the, the transit gateway becomes your uh, hub and spoke model, where hub is the transit gateway and spoke is the spoke VPCs. And if you have egress control, again, a lot of customers also tell us, we don't want any IGW or public subnets in our VPC. What do I do that, and how do I scale? One method of doing that is doing, going through the Transit Hub VPC as on the top, where you control all your egress uh, routes. And all your workload VPCs will, if they have to egress out to the internet, they egress through the Transit Gateway, go to the uh, Transit Hub, where you can do filtering and proxy connections and things like that. Yeah, to, to help you scale there. This will give you much tighter uh, uh, control in terms of east-west traffic, which is VPC to VPC, and also the north-south traffic, which is VPC to back on-prem. And if you have any connectivity options like uh, VMware um, on uh, AWS, the VMC, you can have those, VPC, uh, those VMware connections also terminate onto the transit gateway, uh, potentially. And yeah, just today, we launched a new uh, feature. We, from today, it, there is inter-region VPC peering. So I need to update this deck. So you don't have to necessarily do that uh, shared services cross-region VPC peering. You can absolutely go with uh, transit gateway inter-region VPC peering. With that, so having uh, discussed all this, let's see, let's uh, uh, review with uh, Vinay how Snap has uh, implemented their tier one services. Uh, thanks, Harsha. Um, hey, uh, so my name is Vinay Kola, uh, and I'm an engineer on the data infrastructure team uh, at Snap. Um, my team owns the user and friend graph infrastructure uh, for Snapchat. Uh, and today we're going to talk about how we've uh, architected our services on AWS, uh, keeping operational resilience uh, in mind. Um, but first, in case you haven't uh, transformed yourself into a dog using our lenses, uh, let's talk a bit about what Snapchat is and, and the role we think we play in our users' uh, lives. Um, so our product is largely built around communicating with your real friends. Um, these are the people that you can be authentic with, who you can really be, uh, be yourself with without thinking too much. Um, all, all messages and photos and videos on Snapchat are ephemeral, and we think that lends an authentic feel uh, to the communication that you have. Uh, people tend to be more real uh, when what they're saying isn't going to be recorded on the internet forever. Um, and so this kind of flows into a lot of our product, uh, including our creative tools like Bitmoji, lenses, filters, uh, or even uh, Snap Maps, uh, which, which help you meet, meet up with your friends uh, in real life. Um, coming to our user base, uh, we have uh, 210 million uh, DAU on average uh, now, um, spread all over the globe, uh, and, we, uh, and our users share uh, 3.5 billion think, snaps per day, uh, which amounts to around 40k uh, snaps per second, uh, which is pretty impressive scale. Um, one, one point to note is more than half of our users are outside North America. Uh, and so that means we need to build our infrastructure uh, to have a reliable and low latency experience for users all over the globe. Um, and so for us, regionalization is not only uh, a mechanism to, to deal with failure, but it also helps us boost uh, performance for our users across the globe. So it's, it's a kind of like a two-pronged uh, strategy for us. 
Um, so just to reiterate, uh, like, uh, why do we bother with operational resilience? Because getting it right is pretty hard. Um, and I think for us, it, we framed it in terms of our mission statement. Uh, we, we believe we are the fastest way to share a moment with your friends. And so once you frame it that way, it becomes clear that you need to, that for us, that we need to invest in operational uh, resilience. Um, so, so this framing not only helps us decide why we should invest, but also it helps us decide where we should invest. And that leads us to availability tiers. So at Snap, we, we divide our services into various tiers. I think Harsha alluded to this as well. Um, so at the lowest uh, tier level, we have our uh, infrastructure layer uh, components. So, so these are things like our service mesh, without which uh, uh, almost no services at Snap uh, would be able to operate. Um, at, at tier one, we have our services that are uh, needed for our critical user flows, so like sending messages, sending snaps, posting stories. And so we have messaging as well as uh, our user and friend services uh, in that uh, uh, tier. And the way we incorporate these tiers into our architecture uh, is that uh, a given services in any tier n can only take a dependency on a tier uh, on a service in the same tier or in a lower tier. So for example, messaging would not be able to take a dependency on stickers. And uh, this helps us avoid a common failure pattern where, uh, where, where outages in uh, relatively unimportant services have a cascading effect and lead to a much larger blast radius. So we never want, uh, like if stickers is down, we never want that to impact messaging. And so this, this helps us uh, build our, our architecture uh, in such a way. Um, so today, uh, we're going to do a case study on the user and friend service, which my team uh, owns at Snap. Uh, so firstly, let's just talk about what, uh, what data uh, this service uh, is responsible for. Uh, so it, uh, this owns the, the core user profile uh, data. So this is your uh, username or display name that you, that you, see, that you display yourself as on, Snap, uh, on Snapchat. Uh, it's also responsible for the friend graph data. So who your friends are, can they see your stories, can I send a snap to this person or not, uh, that sort of data. Uh, so, and since the messaging flows and story posting flows require access to this data, uh, it's a tier one service uh, in our architecture. Um, coming to the access patterns uh, that this uh, service uh, deals with, uh, today we're going to talk largely about the online access pattern, um, but there are, there are other uh, common access patterns within uh, Snap for this service. Uh, our data scientists perform a lot of offline analytics on the user uh, base, as well as network-based anal analysis on the friend graph. And so we, uh, we provide daily exports of this data uh, to our data scientists. Um, and additionally, we've seen a rise in uh, near real-time use cases. Uh, so these are use cases like uh, search indexes where they could be updated offline, but they actually have a lot of value from updating their data uh, in uh, closer to real-time. So we've seen an increase in these kind of use cases, and we've kind of kept all of these access patterns in mind, even while developing our, uh, on our online access patterns and how we deal with resiliency over there. Cool. Um, so before thinking about the future, uh, we, need, we obviously need to learn from the past. Uh, so in the past, we had a monolithic service uh, hosted in a single region. Uh, and as you can imagine, that came with a bunch of issues. Uh, since it was a monolithic service, uh, issues in any component of the app would have a large blast radius, uh, and this goes against like uh, 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 the the previous uh, tier-based logic, where uh, stickers should not have an impact on messaging. Um, additionally, since we were hosted in a single region, uh, we were not well isolated from performance and availability issues in that given region. Uh, so that was uh, that uh, again affected our uh, reliability and availability. 
Um, and finally, since we were in a monolith, uh, we had uh, other external service uh, teams within uh, our monolith accessing our user and friend DB directly instead of going through our APIs. And often, uh, they would use uh, parts of our data that we would have considered implementation details. Uh, so this made it very hard for us to evolve our data model, uh, especially as we evolve our product over uh, a span of like seven years. Um, so these were kind of the problems that we set out to fix as we uh, built our new architecture. So uh, to fix the data access uh, issues that I just mentioned, uh, we decided to transition to a service-oriented architecture. So this means all access to our data is always through uh, an, an API that we have defined and we control. Uh, so this lets us uh, uh, hide all of the implementation details, evolve uh, our DBs or however we want to store our data in the background without affecting our customers uh, which are with our other services within Snap. So that helps us uh, over there. Um, the second decision that we had to make was how do we do our multi-region architecture? Uh, so Harsha alluded to this, but um, so for us to, to achieve both uh, uh, resilience in, term, in, uh, in the case of failure, as well as the performance boosts for our users across the globe, we decided to go with a multi-region active-active uh, architecture. Uh, but there are a few variants of these. Um, so in, in any multi-region active-active architecture, the reads are going to be local. So that side is pretty uh, straightforward. But uh, on the write path, I think there are a few different options. Um, so we have write global, which is where all writes across the globe go to a single region. Uh, so you have a single primary region in that case. Uh, there's also the write partitioned or sharding uh, approach that Harsha mentioned. So here, uh, uh, either you partition users based on their uh, location. So, but at any point of time, wherever that user is in the globe, uh, they would still always write to their particular assigned region. Um, and finally, there's also the write local approach where all regions across the globe accept writes. Uh, but in that case, you always need to have some sort of write conflict resolution to deal with concurrent writes across re uh, regions to the same row. Uh, so that adds a bit of complexity over there. Um, in our particular case, we didn't actually have that many writes. Uh, our service is largely read heavy. And so we decided to simplify our architecture and go with the write global approach. Um, but there are other services within Snap that are more write-heavy that have taken uh, other uh, approaches over here. So let's go uh, even deeper into what our stack looks like. Um, so let's first talk about what it looks like in a given uh, region. So our service is uh, hosted on, uh, on, on EKS, so that's the top uh, box in the diagram. Um, our data is hosted in uh, DynamoDB, and all access to that uh, table is fronted by a read-through cache. Uh, so this could be the ElastiCache uh, Redis, or, uh, or it could be any other uh, custom cache uh, hosted on EKS as well. So that's kind of what it looks like in, in our single primary region. Now let's uh, talk about how it looks like in a regionalized uh, manner. So as I mentioned, we want to be able to read our data locally. So that, that means we need to replicate our data to our secondary regions. Uh, so for a moment, let's uh, pause on how we, how, how we actually replicate the data and just think about how we would uh, serve those read and write requests uh, for our users. So in the read local strategy, uh, that's what I mentioned. But in practice, uh, the way we handle reads is a bit more nuanced. Um, we have uh, eventually consistent reads to be handled by the local region. So this would be either the primary region or second region, whichever is closest to you. But all strongly consistent reads, as well as writes, are forwarded to our primary region. So this helps us uh, deal with any consistency issues that uh, 
come up uh, with the async replication to our secondary regions. So that's kind of how we deal with it. And internally, we have found that almost all services, even the privacy-sensitive one, uh, ones, can deal with eventually uh, consistent data. So this sort of setup actually works uh, pretty well for us uh, at Snap. Um, so next, uh, so I kind of glossed over how we do the data replication uh, last time. So here uh, I can, uh, let's, let's go a bit deeper into that. Um, so we have the write request which comes to our primary region and then gets written to our uh, primary region DynamoDB table. Uh, so he, after this is where the magic happens. Uh, we, we build on top of DynamoDB streams and we've built a custom event stream service on top of that that handles the synchronization to uh, other regions. Um, we additionally had the insight that instead of replicating to the DB in the second regions, we could just replicate it to a cache in the second region and kind of just skip uh, writing it to, a, to the persistent storage uh, in the second region. So that's why you'll see uh, in the diagram that synchronization to the DB uh, could be used as, for example, if the cache is down in the second region, you could fall back onto the DB, but it's optional uh, really for this sort of uh, architecture. Uh, the event stream service is also responsible for uh, synchronizing, uh, for, for, for emitting events to the near real-time use cases that I spoke about uh, earlier. So we have, for example, our user search indexes uh, that listen to events from the event stream service uh, in this case. Um, now note that DynamoDB global tables could give you a similar replication to a DynamoDB table in a secondary region, but we don't use it for a few uh, different reasons. So one is we don't have the flexibility to replicate to a cache only. Uh, which, we, which we wanted uh, in our use case. Uh, we also wouldn't have the flexibility to uh, replicate to other clouds, uh, which is in line with our uh, multi-cloud strategy. And finally, we wouldn't have the, we wouldn't have the ability to replicate to other, uh, uh, for the near real-time use cases like uh, search indexes. So for these reasons, we, we, we built our own custom solution instead of using uh, DynamoDB global tables. So now the fun stuff, um, failure modes. So you can see, uh, if you remember our primary region stack, uh, we kind of had three uh, components over there. We had uh, our EKS cluster, which is our compute. Uh, we had our cache, uh, and then we had uh, our, our DynamoDB uh, table itself. So these are the three uh, sets of uh, components that could face issues. And then we have uh, various different uh, modes of failures in increasing order of like, severity. So we could have a single instance of server going down, um, or we could have a whole AZ going down, or we could have a whole uh, region having issues. So let's just talk about like that matrix um, of issues. So if a single uh, instance uh, goes down uh, in, 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 for example, our, our EKS cluster, uh, the Kubernetes scheduler is just going to reschedule the pods on another uh, instance, and we'll be fine. That's totally uh, self-healing. Uh, and similarly, ElastiCache and uh, DynamoDB will handle such instant failures uh, 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 pretty much automatically. Um, taking, that, taking that up a notch, uh, if a whole AZ is going down, again, uh, there, we're not going to run into significant issues. Uh, our EKS cluster is configured such that uh, our pods are distributed across three different AZs. And so any given uh, AZ having issues is not going to affect us significantly. Uh, the, our, our pods would just get scheduled on, on any of the two uh, healthy, node, uh, healthy uh, AZs, and so we wouldn't really face uh, many issues. Uh, similarly, ElastiCache uh, cluster, uh, in our case Redis, would also uh, handle, uh, is also configured such that uh, our nodes are across three different uh, AZs, and so we would, we would still be able to operate even if one of the AZs uh, is having issues. Uh, finally, DynamoDB itself is replicated across uh, multiple AZs, and so we wouldn't uh, 
uh, run into any issues uh, over there uh, either. Uh, with respect to uh, uh, a whole region going down, that's where it gets a bit tougher uh, for us. So uh, in our secondary region, if uh, either the uh, EKS uh, cluster or the DB is having uh, issues, we have the option of failing over uh, to another of our secondary regions or the primary region. Um, however, like if you did this blindly without uh, any uh, without any control, uh, what would happen is your uh, the other healthy region would get a would get would get an influx of new traffic and would potentially take the the currently healthy region also down uh, with it. And so to prevent this, we 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 build controls so that we can gradually uh, uh, migrate the traffic and throttle the user traffic if required, j just to make sure that the healthy region uh, stays healthy. So the, the priority is on not uh, is on limiting the impact of any particular issue and not having uh, that issue spread to other uh, regions as well. Um, we we build these kind of controls into our service mesh rather than making it service specific, so that uh, all services within Snap can uh, can leverage uh, can leverage these mechanisms. So in this case, we would gradually migrate the traffic uh, to the uh, to, to another of the healthy regions. Uh, critically, we would warm up the cache in that region because. Uh, our, our service is heavily reliant on the cache, and so with the cold cache, uh, another region would uh, would probably face issues and face uh, undue pressure on the DynamoDB uh, table. Uh, and once the user impact is mitigated, then we can slowly migrate the traffic back uh, to the other region and bring it back uh, to health. Um, if the primary region itself is having issues, uh, that makes it a bit harder uh, for us to deal with. Uh, so in our case, we would largely uh, throttle user traffic uh, until we can nurse it back to health. Um, for example, if our cache is going down, we would ensure that we have uh, refilled the cache to some extent to prevent uh, like a, a bunch of requests hitting our uh, DB and, and, and causing further issues. Um, if uh, DynamoDB itself uh, in, in our primary region is having issues, uh, currently we consider that as like a catastrophic failure. Um, but one example, one way to uh, mitigate that would would be like we could use uh, DynamoDB global tables uh, to have a replica in another region, uh, and that replica could be used to handle both reads and writes. Uh, so that would be one way to uh, uh, to avoid this scenario. But currently, if our primary region DynamoDB uh, is having issues, then we can just consider that as a catastrophic uh, failure. Um, so that's uh, uh, like an overview of how uh, Snap thinks about uh, our tier one services and how we design in the face of uh, failures. And so with that, I'm going to hand it over to uh, Pawan to talk about continuous resilience. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Vinay. And that's a great uh, example of a multi-region architecture to build highly resilient uh, applications with global users. Um, and uh, you know, we're going to talk about uh, continuous resilience now, uh, basically, uh, I uh, work with the financial sector companies and um, the demand for having highly resilient applications is very high uh, with, uh, with, the, with the financial services industry. And they have very high, uh, very low RTO, RPO requirements as well as very strong regulatory requirements. So within AWS, I sort of do a lot of stuff on resiliency and uh, have worked on the white paper along with the, my team over here uh, and built, built some uh, good, uh, good assets for you to look at. Uh, continuous resilience is something that we are uh, building up as a future of, uh, of building resilient platforms. So uh, when we work with the customers, what we are seeing today is that a lot of our customers are moving not only you know, the front-end applications or web applications or new applications, but they're moving 
mission critical they're moving applications which are critical to business right so they are moving those critical workloads for that they require and they are asking us make sure that our applications are well uh, are, are resilient right so harsha talked about the well architected program which helps you uh, review your application and gives you a good cover coverage of the resiliency of your application uh, and these are not just financial services right these are uh, industries across different verticals healthcare you take manufacturing uh, automotive uh, travel finance so they are all moving mission critical applications to the work, uh, to the cloud right so resiliency is a very very important factor here uh, in the past these companies used disaster recovery as a method to achieve resiliency right so basically you would have a backup data center somewhere and say okay you know what um, if i have a failure i'm going to fail over everything to my disaster recovery center right so that was that was a standard well practiced method uh, of 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 resiliency uh, we are seeing a lot of companies adopt chaos now as as a part of their application development life cycle so you know you, they go it's not only like we are going to disaster recovery but we're going to test our applications with random failures you know there are tools out there uh, netflix pioneered that amazon's doing a lot of that a lot of work in that area um, and and that's that's what we have seen uh, companies adopt a little bit of of it's not it's not uh, really what we want we want people to be testing more uh, and 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 a lot of lot more uh, random testing the word chaos sort of trips people up and you can't run chaos in production so that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a problem right so the future what we are talking about sort of looking at is what we call continuous uh, resilience right so uh, we'll talk more about continuous resilience in the upcoming slides i want to talk about it's a big field it's an upcoming field um, but there are a couple of main ideas i'll try to get across to you guys about continuous resilience so firstly right i mean we all sort of know this right uh, you can only be as strong as your weakest link and if you have modern applications there are there are many dependencies uh, and and you know if there's one weak link in this whole dependency graph then you're going to have the whole application fail uh, when i talked to, uh, did a great uh, talk about like you know you if you tier your application you should never take a dependency of a lower level tier for your application right so those are the things that you want to sort of figure out in your application so uh, it's not everybody who can do this right so you have to have dedicated teams who are who are looking who are who have the main job of finding weaknesses uh, or similar to what we talk about uh, you know if we, if we look at uh, if we look at availability from a different point of view availability security and safety all are interdependent they all behave and have similar characteristics right so for security we do things like what are threat vectors so even for resiliency we need to do the similar thing we need to figure out what are the failure vectors what are the modes of failure for our applications right so we we need to do that they have similar characteristics in the sense that it's hard to measure a near miss a miss is as good as a mile so if you have not captured the details of of your application as why it failed then it's hard to recover or hard to create a model to recover from that uh an example of that is you know uh, we see this all the time in operations right uh, people uh, you know see something failing an operator see something failing and he'll at the last minute do a deep dive dive and he'll save the application from really failing uh, but then he will not feed back the loop right you not close the loop back to the de developer hey you know there's something that happened here this is what we need to do to fix it so that's a miss and it's hard to capture that uh modern applications are very complex right uh, for those of you who are developers in the room uh, you know doing doing microservices architecture uh, and all of that there are a lot of dependencies and to model some of those dependencies is really tough 
right? And if you don't do all of this uh, in terms of your application, you're going to land up with catastrophic failures uh, in your in your applications. Uh, so so we look at this very similarly to what we do for security, right? They have similar mitigations. Uh, availability has similar mitigation, safety and uh, security have similar mitigations, right? So the answer here is uh, layered defense in depth. What does that mean, right? Uh, you do some of this today. Uh, instead of one server, you'll use two servers for the application, right? So you'll spread the load amongst multiple applications. Uh, you may have different network and data paths to provide you multi-path uh, uh, for your application. So you have some layers of defense over there. You want to design applications, and Harsha talked about it earlier, this is what we do at AWS as well, uh, to, to restrict the blast radius, pro build bulkheads, right? So in the sense, we talked about cellular architecture, something similar, like, uh, you know, if, if you are having an application, maybe shard it in a way where a microservice servicing, servicing customers with A as their, you know, name, uh, that may go down, but it'll still have B to Z active, right? So you are basically limiting your application uh, failure uh, scope, right? So you have a bulkhead there. And try to minimize dependencies. I mean, you know, I've seen many complex applications have a dependency graph, which is which is crazy. You can't analyze that, right? So uh, use microservices, uh, use uh, least privilege, right? Smaller, smaller microservices. That way you minimize the dependency between the microservices. Uh, and if things fail, right? It's okay. You know, you design the overall application to work in a uh, in a reduced capacity mode, right? So you have some functionality missing, but overall the customer does have some good experience uh, working with the application. Um, another important thing about uh, uh, these three is that uh, they break each other. Like I'll give an example, right? So um, an example here is a hacker hacks into a computer and shuts down your main application. So that main application means your availability of that application is gone. So you have lost availability. Now. Take it further, right? Suppose that application was an application running in your self-driving car, <laughs> right? Uh, that could lead to a catastrophe for the passengers in the car, right? So these are all interdependent uh, and they break each other. So we had to build applications which are secure, resilient, uh, and safe, right? So that's that's the goal here. So the first thing that, you know, uh, important thing about continuous resilience is how do we measure that risk or what is the risk of continuing, right? So what happens? Uh, if your system fails, what happens when something in your system fails, right? Uh, I'll take an example. Uh, suppose you have an application which runs on a computer, right? And somebody, suddenly a DIM or a memory chip in the computer fails, right? Well, your application could be smart and choose to stop and say, okay, you know what? I detected this failure and I'm going to save state and I'm going to exit, right? Give a notification, I'm going to keep, keep the functionality. That may be good, that may be bad. We don't know. We'll have to figure that out. Or it could say, yes, I acknowledge that there's a failure and uh, you know maybe I will continue functionality with reduced amount of memory consumption. I will isolate that dim out of my memory space if it can and it continue to function, right? Or do nothing and then fail horribly, right? Because then now you have traversed uh, application code paths that have never been tested. You don't know what's going to happen. There's going to be memory corruption. You're going to have mis misleading values, things like that, which are not going to be helpful in your in your outcomes, right? So, so that's an important uh, part of of continuous resilience. You need to make some decisions as to what uh, trade-offs as to what your application uh, will do in case of failures. Like, you know, if a permission lookup fails, should you stop or should you continue, right? So, this is some of the decisions that you have to make upfront, uh, you know, and it might be okay, but it might not be okay. You have to figure out 
trade-offs, right? So, well, maybe it's okay. Uh, it's public data, so you you can still, without authorization, you can still give the uh, the customer the data. But maybe no, it's a uh, it's private data, so you don't want to share that out. So you probably want to stop in that kind of failure, right? Uh, if you don't do things, you end up apologizing. There's a good <laughs> good. Uh, uh, a paper there out there, uh, you know, how to apologize for failures. <laughs> so you land up apologizing for those. Uh, but yeah, I mean, these are some of the important things that you need to understand and look into for your application. The other part is continuous testing, right? Uh, how do you, uh, many of you obviously have a backup data center, right? Uh, you may also be doing a couple of application failovers a year, right? Uh, but how many of you have actually done a complete data center failover? By show of hands, has anybody done it? Okay, one, two, three, couple of, okay, so a couple have done it, but majority have not done a, a full data center failover at once, right? Uh, this, this brings out a lot of complexities, right? Uh, and if you don't do these uh, testing continuously, right, then basically it boils down to availability theater. Basically it's, you know, I have something good on a book, <laughs> but I have not practiced it. And it's like a fairy tale. Okay, you know, uh, if, if everything was good and uh, happy, we would be running. But in case of a disaster, we don't know what, what happens. And you don't want to be uh, in that situation, right? I, I'll give you some examples of how, how uh, companies, uh, you know, this was a big company, a SaaS vendor who basically forgot to renew the domain name, right? <laughs> Nowadays, we have auto renewal and all of that, but you could still forget. I mean, these are things that you have to model your application to understand or keep track of, right? Uh, Another very common failure mode is the failure of our SSL certificates or our keys or our, our credentials, right? These are, this is one of the most common failure modes, right? So uh, another company had this kind of failure and was down for a long time, right? So again, apologies coming out, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and excuses, right? So you don't want to be in that situation. Uh, this was uh, this was very very important uh, experience for the financial services industry uh, in the northeast region when we had the failure of uh, I mean we, when we had the hurricane a lot of the data centers got flooded so what was the learning there right obviously computers don't work underwater so don't build your data centers uh, in the basement uh, learn from other people's uh, mistakes right so uh, before this there was the the uh, the, the nu nuclear reactor in japan failure right and over there that failure was due to the generator being uh, on the ground level which was impacted by the hurricane right so by the, by, the, by the tsunami right so so you know you have examples that you can see and then build them into your test plan or your uh, or your or your resiliency plan right so hey i saw someone else failing because of that so you don't want to be the person tomorrow who has not looked into into all these failure modes right so that's that's the that's the uh, you know, importance of testing importance of learning from others and uh, and and trying to test your application another important area uh, is to be prepared for a failure, right? Um, in, in terms of chaos architecture, you do a lot of testing, you do a lot of validation, but are you, are you fully prepared for this, right? Are you fully, uh, less, uh, you know, from an architecture perspective, you have a couple of layers in your application. So are the people who are going to respond to that specific instance, do they know what to do? When, you, when a failure occurs, you call them up and say, hey, you know, this application has failed. Uh, and if they don't even know how to log into the console or they don't know how to operate the application or they don't know the dependencies, you're going to have a long time to recover or you're not going to be able to recover the application. So that's something that you need to practice. So the game, so you have game days, tabletop exercises. That's part of your, your preparedness plan, right? So you know, you know, if something's happened, how to react to unknown situations. You can do the testing 
of known situations, but always there are going to be situations which are something happens, uh, it fails all the time. Uh, and, and this is something that, like, you know, uh, we talk about there is no compression algorithm for experience, right? So more, more preparedness you have, the better it is for your application. So, you know, uh, application, you need to have tests in your application for certain failure modes. One of the most overlooked areas is the network fabric, right? We all assume it'll work. It's mostly resilient. It's mostly available. But then it's those critical times when you really need it to work, you know, when the failover is happening, a DNS entry is wrong, or a route, a firewall was missing, or, you know, the, the routes were not correct, uh, the links were not up-to-dated with the capacity that you needed it to, to be. So you're going to have those kind of scenarios. You need to model those in your tabletop exercises. You need to model those into your, into your test plans. And obviously, uh, infrastructure, right? data centers, servers, storage, all of that. So you have to have that to find the weakest link in any of these, uh, in these, in these uh, layers, right? So coming back to the defense in depth, right? So you have basically made sure that your staff is experienced. We have done game days. We have done tabletop exercises. They know how to react. You have built robust applications. Uh, you know, you have a dependable uh, network fabric, switch fabric, which you have tested regularly. You know the failover of that. And obviously, you have a good, resilient service foundation, right? So, so that's, that's uh, one of the uh, defense in depth methodologies uh, for preparedness. So moving into the next important category or area of uh, continuous resiliency is observability. And by the way, um, you know, I have a lot of material over here and it's going to you know, sound that I'm talking too fast, uh, but all of this will be available to you uh, after, the, after this and uh, these slides will also be available, right? So you can go through them, some of these. Uh, coming back to the observability part, right? Um, how do you make sure you are measuring the right things in your application? A truly observable application is the one where you know you can measure the application functionality by just looking at the inputs and outputs, right? Uh, so if you have certain inputs, you know what the outputs are, uh, and if some without the inputs changing, the output changes. You know something has happened in your application. So we at Amazon do this a lot, right? So we we are dealing with web services, we're dealing with APIs. So we measure things like you know API rates, and we're looking at API rates for if for no reason and no input change, the API rates fell down. Then we know there's some problem somewhere, right? So that's an observable system. So you want to build observability into your application. You want to be able to measure the right places, the right metrics, right, in, in your application. So the, uh, to do this, uh, a big, lot of studies have been done around systems engineering uh, to make a safer environment uh, from, very, uh, from many academic institutions. This is for uh, you know, systems which are very critical to humanity, right, for running, running the airline systems, for running the nuclear power plants. So we want to take some of those learnings and move it into into our you know application development lifecycle planning right so so if you take from the book there is this is an example of how they look at a control system right so you have a, basically a process which has inputs and outputs and you know there's something happening there along with that you have a controller which is looking at that application and then you have some human monitoring the application and stuff like that so you have a, a design model to go now if you take this as a design model and say okay let me look at the hazards that this can have right uh, oh, first of all, let's overlay an application with our with with the with the with this model. So you have a financial service application. You have customer requests for data for maybe money transfer between each account, and you know you have the completed actions, and it goes through this whole whole model. So looking at the hazards, what could happen, right? Um, there could be a human control action issue, right? Over here, 
the human may be uh, making a wrong decision, you know, he may have uh, taken an unsafe action to rectify something, or he may not be looking at the console properly, or he may be looking at a different console, data is coming out in the wrong sequence. Um, so, so the idea here is to not to look at the blocks which are, which are built, built in the robust way, but the lines connecting the blocks, right? So some output is causing, or some in, uh, output missing is, cause, is, is caused by some failure of some action. Right, so that's you know that's something that we want to look at from a human perspective. There could be also, hey, your sensors are wrong, right? Uh, you are you are getting wrong data, or you're getting zero data, or you know you're getting data too fast or too slow. Uh, I, I, so there's an example, uh, you know, and so someone in the audience pointed out. Uh, so you know, uh, I, I didn't want to bring it up, but it's it's a Boeing story, right? Over there, they had one sensor, and the sensor was not, you know, giving the right data. Uh, and the control system said, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm, there were, yeah, there were two sensors, <laughs> uh, and, and it was not giving the right data, and, and, uh, and basically it was forcing the plane down. So that could be one of the issues, right? So you have out of order update, too rapid, things like that. So you want to look at those controls as well, right? Um, there may be some model issues. You know, the perception that you have from the, how this application should run versus how the application is actually running. In the same example of, of the Boeing plane, the pilots were not trained on the new 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 system, so they did not know how to react to to the things changing, right? So they had a different uh, different perception of how to fix this problem coming in. So again, that's another area that you want to look at. Um, so moving on to um, the final part of this is the risk calculation, right? So I, I talked about how do you make a decision. The decision is going to be based on risk, right? So we have standard risk models, you know, you uh, multiply secure, uh, uh, the severity of the problem by the probability, that's your risk. You have a basic financial and economic model, you take that and you do some analysis and you have, have that. Uh, from an engineering perspective, we want to add observability into this, right? So uh, this, is a, this is a new methodology where uh, failure modes and effect analysis basically gives you, gives you a better view of your risk. Uh, by pulling in the detectability of the problem into the risk equation, right? So you basically uh, calculate the risk uh, based on what you can see, right? So let's let's take that into an example of a, a layered uh, web application, right? So you have multiple people in this application. You have people who are product managers and developers. They're looking at more of the business side, what the, what the thing could be. You have the platform team who's looking at what technology decisions I can make. Uh, you have the infrastructure team, which is looking at, you know, how do I spread the applications. So there are going to be different failures, different probabilities of failures for each of these different layers, right? So you want to uh, basically be able to calculate that. And I'll point out, I'm going to show some examples here. I'm going to walk, walk through them fast. But at the bottom, we have these uh, slides and the, and the spreadsheets available if you, want to, if you want to try this out by yourself. Uh, so like, for example, if we take the, the uh, infrastructure, right? What are, what are the risks uh, that are the highest impact? Something that you don't know about. Like earthquake suddenly happens and you can't, you can't compensate for that risk. For that, the ranking is the highest. Uh, going down to the lowest is where you, know, you, can, you can mitigate, you know, have some mitigation. So for that, you have the lowest ranking of that, uh, of that risk, right? So you have basically uh, put a ranking for, for the severity of the effect of the, of the failure. Take the probability of the service uh, of the failure. You know, I think this is a rule of thumb kind of thing. We, if you have history in your in your in your system, you know how many times things fail, mean time between failures. You can probably come up with some numbers there. But don't don't stress about this. Start with a guess. You have some ideas here. If it fails more than half of the time, or if it fails less than one in a million times, so you have some some ranking to put there. Uh, then uh, you move into the detectability part of it, right? You cannot detect this at all. 
that means you have the highest risk there. But if you can detect, you have good observability into the into the application, then you can basically uh, mitigate or uh, fix that uh, fix that issue. So, taking all the three together, uh, you can basically uh, here I'm going to just flip through some examples of what what an application level error could look like, and you know you have a service lookup, DNS fails, so that's a observable uh, error. You, if you have a connection to a host, no route, it's a fail fast, so you know what happened there. Um, you have another one where you're making a request, it's undeliverable, host not found. So these are kind of errors, and you will map these, and I'll move fast from these ones, because you can see them in the slide. But if you take this, you can fill up this spreadsheet and say, okay, you know what? These are my risks in the different categories, uh, and ranks in the different categories, and I come up with a risk model, and that helps me make a decision of what I should do in case my application fails, so that you can make those decisions. There are more examples here. Um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to skip through or uh, skip through the slides fast, so that uh, you can at least get an idea of what could go wrong and how to how to how to view this. This is an, this is an example of an application level uh, failure. So you have an example where the certificates were missing or security was missing. What what to do, right? So you get a, you get a, you get an action out there. Again, um, another example here is the file. You, you couldn't get the file from the server. So, what do you do? So you basically, you again fill up a spreadsheet, make an, make make your uh, decision risk decision, and basically focus on the high risk ones that you want to uh, uh, fix your application. So, bot uh, so bottom line, you have uh, two uh, methods uh, to do uh, do the application uh, resiliency. Uh, uh, one is top-down, STPA, which is top-down, looks at more of a business perspective, and the other one is uh, FMEA, which is a bottoms-up approach. You get both good results in both of them, so both are useful. And I would say, finally, uh, use some best practices when designing cloud, right? So rule of threes, make sure you have a backup of a backup, make sure you have multi-region deployment, active, 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 things like that. Uh, then uh, you have... Um, fail up so this is something that people asked us hey how do we design for in aws so you know you probably want to be uh, more deterministic in your failure than less deterministic so in, in this scenario if you are in us uh, you need to deploy in us east choose us east 2 as your primary region and fail over to us east 1 because you know that's a bigger region you'll have capacity you'll have lower latency and all of those things so so you can recover that way that's a, just a suggestion i mean you are you know obviously the decision will be made based on your application uh, practice you know, chaos engineering is, is important. You have to basically make sure you practice those muscles for your applications, make sure that you know what you're doing. Uh, give out badges of honor to application developers who have passed their application through a chaos test because that's important. Uh, and, and practice continuous resiliency, right? So uh, it's all chaos engineering, but it's a different name. So basically do, do like what we do for um, application development lifecycle. We have a, a DevOps. So this is like a test phase in that. Uh, include that. Finally, I will just say uh, about the platform. AWS is is a platform where you know it leads to a lot of automation because it's an API-driven platform. So you can automate a lot of this stuff. Uh, basically, build your disaster recovery processes not as manual processes but as automated tasks and standardized automation. And finally, uh, practice uh, continuous resilience and don't don't look for that one event or scary event of failure once a year. So with that, uh, you know, thank you for. For coming, uh, there are certain references to the white paper, and obviously Adrian, who's who's very much involved in a lot of these discussions. Uh, there are some repeat sessions that are there that you can go to, and uh, please uh, fill out the fill out the feedback form. Thank you, and we'll be available for questions later on.